Samuel D. Warren and Louis D. Brandeis, The Right to Privacy, Volume 4, Harvard Law Review, page 193, 1890. It could be done only on principles of private justice, moral fitness, and public convenience, which, when applied to a new subject, make common law without a precedent, much more when received and approved by usage. Willis J. and Miller v. Taylor. That the individual shall have full protection in person and in property is a principle as old as the common law, but it has been found necessary from time to time to define anew the exact nature and extent of such protection. Political, social, and economic changes entail the recognition of new rights, and the common law in its internal youth grows to meet the demands of society. Thus, in very early times, the law gave a remedy only for physical interference with life and property, for trespasses viet armis. Then the right to life served only to protect the subject from battery in its various forms. Liberty meant freedom from actual restraint, and the right to property secured to the individual his lands and his cattle. Later, there came a recognition of man's spiritual nature of his feelings and his intellect. Gradually, the scope of these legal rights broadened, and now the right to life has come to mean the right to enjoy life, the right to be let alone, the right to liberty secures the exercise of extensive civil privileges, and the term property has grown to comprise every form of possession, intangible as well as tangible. Thus, with the recognition of the legal value of sensations, the protection against actual bodily injury was extended to prohibit mere attempts to do such injury, that is, the putting another in fear of such injury. From the action of battery grew that of assault. Much later, came, there came a qualified protection of the individual against offensive noises and odors, against dust and smoke and excessive vibration. The law of nuisance was developed. So regard for human emotions soon extended the scope of personal immunity beyond the body of the individual. His reputation, the standing among his fellow men, was considered, and the law of slander and libel arose. Man's family relations became a part of the legal conception of his life, and the alienation of a wife's affections was held remediable. Occasionally, the law halted as in its refusal to recognize the intrusion by seduction upon the honor of the family. But even here the demands of society were met. A mean fiction, the action per quod servitum emisit, was resorted to, and by allowing damages for injury to the parents' feelings, an adequate remedy was ordinarily afforded. Similar to the expansion of the right to life was the growth of the legal conception of property, from corporeal property arose the incorporeal rights issuing out of it, and then there opened the wide realm of intangible property in the products and processes of the mind. As works of literature and art, goodwill, trade secrets, and trademarks. This development of the law was inevitable. The intense intellectual and emotional life and the heightening of sensations which came with the ad with the advance of civilization, made it clear to men that only a part of the plain pleasure and profit of life lay in physical things. 
thoughts, emotions, and sensations demanded legal recognition, and the beautiful capacity for growth which characterizes the common law enabled the judges to afford the requisite protection without the interposition of the legislature. Recent interventions in business methods call attention to the next step which must be taken for the protection of the person and for securing to the individual what Judge Cooley calls the right to be let alone. Instantaneous photographs and newspaper enterprise have invaded the sacred precincts of private and domestic life, and numerous mechanical devices threaten to make good the prediction that what is whispered in the closet shall be proclaimed from the housetops. For years there has been a feeling that the law must afford some remedy for the unauthorized circulation of portraits of private persons, and the evil of the invasion of privacy by the newspapers, long keenly felt, has been but recently discussed by an able writer. The alleged facts of a somewhat notorious case brought here, but brought before an inferior tribunal in New York a few months ago, directly involved the consideration of the right of circulating portraits. And the question whether our law will recognize and protect the right to privacy in this and in other respects must soon come before our courts for consideration. Of the desirability, indeed of the necessity, of such protection, there can, it is believed, be no doubt. The press is overstepping in every direction the obvious bounds of propriety and of decency. Gossip is no longer the resource of the idle and of the vicious, but has become a trade which is pursued with industry as well as effrontery. To satisfy a prurient taste, the details of sexual relations are spread broadcast in the columns of the daily papers. To occupy the indolent, column upon column is filled with idle gossip, which can only be procured by intrusion upon the domestic circle. The intensity and complexity of life attendant upon advancing civilization have rendered necessary some retreat from the world, and man, under the refining influence of culture, has become more sensitive to publicity, so that solitude and privacy have become more essential to the individual. But modern enterprise and invention have, through invasions upon his privacy, subjected him to mental pain and distress far greater than could be inflicted by mere bodily injury." Nor is the harm wrought by such invasions confined to the suffering of those who may be made the subjects of journalistic or other enterprise. In this, as in other branches of commerce, the supply creates the demand. Each crop of unseemly gossip thus harvested becomes the seed of more, and in direct proportion to its circulation results in a lowering of social standards and of morality. Even gossip apparently harmless, when widely and persistently circulated, is potent for evil. It both belittles and perverts. It belittles by inverting the relative importance of things, thus dwarfing the thoughts and aspirations of a people. When personal gossip attains the dignity of print and crowds the space available for matters of real interest to the community, what wonder that the ignorant and thoughtless mistake its relevance importance easy of comprehension, appealing to that weak side of human nature which is never wholly cast down by the misfortunes and frailties of our neighbors, no one can be surprised that it usurps the place of interest in brains capable of other things. Triviality destroys at once robustness of thought and delicacy of feeling. No enthusiasm can flourish. No generous impulse can survive under its blighting influence." 
It is our purpose to consider whether the existing law affords a principle which can properly be invoked to protect the privacy of the individual, and if it does, what the nature and extent of such protection is. Owing to the nature of the instruments by which privacy is invaded, the injury inflicted bears a superficial resemblance to the wrongs dealt with by the law of slander and of libel, while a legal remedy for such injury seems to involve the treatment of mere wounded feelings as a substantive cause of action. The principle on which the law of defamation rests covers, however, a radically different class of effects from those for which attention is now asked. It deals only with damage to reputation, with the injury done to the individual in his external relations to the community by lowering him in the estimation of his fellows. The matter published of him, however widely circulated and however unsuited to publicity, must, in order to be actionable, have a direct tendency to injure him in his intercourse with others, and even if in writing or in print, must subject him to the hatred, ridicule, or contempt of his fellow men. The effect of the publication upon his estimate of himself and upon his own feelings not forming an essential element in the cause of action. In short, the wrongs and correlative rights recognized by the law of slander and libel are in their nature material rather than spiritual. That branch of the law simply extends the protection surrounding physical property to certain of the conditions necessary or helpful to worldly prosperity. On the other hand, our law recognizes no principle upon which compensation can be granted for mere injury, mere injury to the feelings. However painful the mental effects upon another of an act, though purely wanton or even malicious, yet if the act itself is otherwise lawful, the suffering inflicted is demnum absque injuria. Injury of feelings may indeed be taken account of in ascertaining the amount of damages when attending what is recognized as a legal injury. But our system, unlike the Roman law, does not afford a remedy even for mental suffering which results from mere contumely and insult from an intentional and unwarranted violation of the honor of another. It is not, however, necessary in order to sustain the view that the common law recognizes and upholds a principle applicable to cases of invasion of privacy to invoke the analogy, which is but superficial, to injuries sustained either by an attack upon reputation or by what the civilians called a violation of honor. For the legal doctrines relating to infractions of what is ordinarily termed the common law right to intellectual and artistic property are, it is believed, but instances and applications of a general right to privacy, which properly understood afford a remedy for the evils under consideration. The common law secures to each individual the right of determining, ordinarily, to what extent his thoughts, sentiments, and emotions shall be communicated to others. Under our system of government, he can never be compelled to express them, expect, except when upon the witness stand. And even if he has chosen to give them expression, he generally retains the power to fix the limits of the publicity which shall be given them. The existence of this right does not depend upon the particular method of expression adopted. It is immaterial whether it be by word or by signs, in painting, by sculpture, or in music. Neither does the existence of the right depend upon the nature or value of the thought or emotion, nor upon the excellence of the means of expression. The same protection is accorded to a casual letter or an entry in a diary, and to the most valuable poem or essay, to a botch or daub, and to a masterpiece. 
In every such case, the individual is entitled to decide whether that which is his shall be given to the public. No other has the right to publish his productions in any form without his consent. This right is wholly independent of the material on which, or the means by which, the thought, sentiment, or emotion is expressed. It may exist independently of any corporeal being, as in words spoken, a song sung, a drama acted, or if expressed on any material as a poem in writing, the author may have parted with the paper without forfeiting any proprietary right in the composition itself. The right is lost only when the author himself communicates his production to the public, in other words, publishes it. It is entirely independent of the copyright laws and their extension into the domain of art. The aim of those statutes is to secure to the author, composer, or artist the entire profits arriving, arising from publication. But the common law protection enables him to control absolutely the act of publication and in the exercise of his own discretion to decide whether there shall be any publication at all. The statutory right is of no value unless there is a publication. The common law right is lost as soon as there is a publication. What is the nature, the basis, of this right to prevent the publication of manuscripts or works of art? It is stated to be the enforcement of a right of property, and no difficulty arises in accepting this view so long as we have only to deal with the reproduction of literary and artistic compositions. They certainly possess many of the attributes of ordinary property. They are transferable, they have a value, and publication or reproduction is a use by which that value is realized. But where the value of the production is found not in the right to take the profits arising from publication, but in the peace of mind or the relief afforded by the ability to prevent any publication at all, it is difficult to regard the right as one of property in the common acceptation of that term. A man records in a letter to his son or in his diary that he did not dine with his wife on a certain day. No one into whose hands those papers fall could publish them to the world, even if possession of the documents had been obtained rightfully. And the prohibition would not be confined to the publication of a copy of the letter itself or of the diary entry. The restraint extends also to a publication of the contents. What is the thing which is protected? Surely not the intellectual act of recording the fact that the husband did not dine with his wife, but that fact itself. It is not the intellectual product, but the domestic occurrence. A man writes a dozen letters to different people. No person would be permitted to publish a list of the letters written. If the letters or the contents of the diary were protected as literary compositions, the scope of the protection afforded should be the same secured to a published writing under the copyright law. But the copyright law would not prevent an enumeration of the letters or, the, or a publication of some of the facts contained therein. The copyright of a series of paintings or etchings would prevent a reproduction of the paintings as pictures, but it would not prevent a publication of a list or even a description of them. Yet, in the famous case of Prince Albert v. Strange, the court held that the common law rule prohibited not merely the reproduction of the etchings with the which the plaintiff and Queen Victoria had made for their own pleasure, but also the publishing, at least by printing or writing, though not by copy or resemblance, a description of them, whether more or less limited or summary, whether in the form of a catalog or otherwise. 
Likewise, an unpublished collection of, a, of news possessing no element of a literary nature is protected from privacy. That this protection cannot rest upon the right to literary, literary or artistic property in any exact sense appears the more clearly when the subject matter for which protection is invoked is not even in the form of intellectual property, but has the attributes of ordinary tangible property. Suppose a man has a collection of gems or curiosities which he keeps private. It would hardly be contended that any person could publish a catalog of them, and yet the articles enumerated are certainly not intellectual property in the legal sense, any more than a collection of stoves or of chairs. The belief that the idea of property in its narrow sense was the basis of the protection of unpublished manuscripts led an able court to refuse in several cases, injunctions against the publication of private letters on the ground that letters not possessing the attributes of literary compositions are not property entitled to protection, and that it was evident the plaintiff could not have considered the letters as of any value whatever as literary productions, for a letter cannot be considered of value to the author which he never would consent to have published. But these decisions have not been followed and it may now be considered settled that the protection afforded by the common law to the author of any writing is entirely independent of its pecuniary value, its intrinsic merits, or of any intention to publish the same, and, of course, also wholly independent of the material, if any, upon which, or the mode in which, the thought or sentiment was expressed. Although the courts have asserted that they rested their decisions on the narrow grounds of protection to property, yet there are recognitions of a more liberal doctrine. Thus, in the case of Prince Albert v. Strange, already referred to, the opinions both of the Vice-Chancellor and of the Lord-Chancellor on appeal show a more or less clearly defined perception of a principle broader than those which were mainly discussed, and on which they both placed their chief reliance. Vice-Chancellor Knight Bruce referred to publishing of a man that he had written to particular persons or on particular subjects as an instance of possibly injurious disclosures as to private matters that the courts would in a proper case prevent. Yet, it is difficult to perceive how, in such a case, any right of property, in the narrow sense, would be drawn in question, or why, if such a publication would be restrained, when it threatened to expose the victim not merely to sarcasm but to ruin, it should not equally be enjoined if it threatened to embitter his life. To deprive a man of the potential profits to be realized by publishing a catalog of his gems cannot per se be wrong to him. The possibility of future profits is not a right of property which the law ordinarily recognizes. It must therefore be an infraction of other rights which constitutes the wrongful act, and that infraction is equally wrongful whether its results are to forestall the profits that the individual himself might secure by giving the matter a publicity obnoxious to him, or to gain an advantage at the expense of his mental pain and suffering. If the fiction of property in a narrow sense must be preserved, it is still true that the end accomplished by the gossip monger is attained by the use of that which is in others, the facts relating to his private life, which he has seen fit to keep private. Lord Cottenham stated that a man is entitled to be protected in the exclusive use and enjoyment of that which is exclusively his, and cited with approval the opinion of Lord Eldon, as reported in a manuscript note of the case of Wyatt v. Wilson in 1820, respecting an engraving of George III during his illness, to the effect that 
If one of the late king's physicians had kept a diary of what he heard and saw, the court would not, in the king's lifetime, have permitted him to print and publish it. And Lord Cottenham declared, in respect to the acts of the defendants in the case before him, that privacy is the right invaded. But if privacy is once recognized as a right entitled to legal protection, the interposition of the courts cannot depend on the peculiar nature of the injuries resulting. These considerations lead to the conclusion that the protection afforded to thoughts, sentiments, and emotions expressed through the medium of writing or of the arts, so far as it consists in preventing publication, is merely an instance of the enforcement of the more general right of the individual to be left alone. It is like the right not to be assaulted or beaten, the right not to be imprisoned, the right not to be maliciously prosecuted, the right not to be defamed. In each of these rights, as indeed in all other rights recognized by the law, there inheres the quality of being owned or possessed, and, as that is the distinguishing attribute of property, there may be some propriety in speaking of those rights as property, but obviously they bear little resemblance to, that, to what is ordinarily comprehended under that term. The principle which protects personal writings and all other personal productions, not against theft and physical appropriation, but against publication in any form, is in reality not the principle of private property, but that of an inviolate personality. If we are correct in this conclusion, the existing law affords a principle which may be invoked to protect the privacy of the individual from invasion either by the too enterprising press, the photographer, or the possessor of any other modern device for recording or reproducing scenes or sounds. For the protection afforded is not confined by the authorities to those cases where any particular medium or form of expression has been adopted, nor to products of the intellect. The same protection is afforded to emotions and sensations expressed in a musical composition or other work of art as to a literary composition, and words spoken, a pantomime acted, a sonata performed, is no less entitled to protection than if each had been reduced to writing. The circumstance that a thought or emotion has been recorded in a permanent form renders its identification easier and hence may be important from the point of view of evidence but it has no significance as a matter of substantive right. If, then, the decisions indicate a general right to privacy for thoughts, similarly artistic compositions, and the casual and often involuntary expression given to them in the ordinary conduct of life. In other words, it may be contended that the protection afforded is granted to the conscious products of labor, perhaps as an encouragement to effort. This contention, however plausible, has in fact little to recommend it. If the amount of labor involved be adopted as a test, we might well find that the effort to conduct oneself properly in business and in domestic relations had been far greater than that involved in painting a picture or writing a book. One would find that it was far easier to express lofty sentiments in a diary than in the conduct of a noble life. If the test of deliberateness of the act be adopted, much casual correspondence, which is now accorded full protection, would be excluded from the beneficent operation of existing rules. After the decisions denying the distinction attempted to be made between those literary productions which it was intended to publish and those which it was not, all considerations of the amount of labor involved, the degree of deliberation, the value of the product, and the intention of publishing must be abandoned. 
and no basis is discerned upon which the right to restrain publication and reproduction of such so-called literary and artistic works can be rested except the right to privacy as a part of the more general right to the immunity of the person, the right to one's personality. It should be stated that in some instances where protection has been afforded against wrongful publication, the jurisdiction has been asserted not on the ground of property, or at least not wholly on that ground, but upon the ground of an alleged breach of an implied contract or of a trust or confidence. Thus, in Abernethy v. Hutchinson, 1825, where the plaintiff, a distinguished surgeon, sought to restrain the publication in the Lancet of unpublished lectures which he had delivered at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, Lord Eldon doubted whether there could be property in lectures which had not been reduced to writing, but granted the injunction on the ground of breach of confidence, holding that when persons were admitted as pupils or otherwise to hear these lectures, although they were orally delivered, and although the parties might go to the extent, if they were able to do so, of putting down the whole by means of shorthand, yet they could do that only for the purposes of their own information, and could not publish for profit that which they had not obtained the right of selling. In Prince Albert v. Strange, 1849, Lord, Lord Cottenham, on appeal, while recognizing a right of property in the etchings which of itself would justify the issuance of the injunction, stated, after discussing the evidence, that he was bound to assume that the possession of the etchings by the defendant had its foundation in a breach of trust, confidence, or contract, and that upon such ground also the plaintiff's title to the injunction was fully sustained. In Tuck v. Priester, 1887, the plaintiffs were owners of a picture and employed the defendant to make a certain number of copies. He did so, and made also a number of other copies for himself, and offered them for sale in England at a lower price. Subsequently, the plaintiffs registered their copyright in the picture, and then brought suit for an injunction and damages. The Lord Justices differed as to the application of the Copyright Acts to the case, but held unanimously that, independent of those acts, the plaintiffs were entitled to an injunction and damages for breach of contract. In Pollard v. Photographic Company, 1888, a photographer who had taken a lady's photograph under the ordinary circumstances was restrained of it from exhibiting it, and also from selling copies of it, on the ground that it was a breach of an implied term in the contract, and also that it was a breach of confidence. Mr. Justice North interjected in the argument to the plaintiff's counsel the inquiry, Do you dispute that if the negative likeness were taken on the sly, the person who took it might exhibit copies? And counsel for the plaintiff answered, In that case, there would be no trust or consideration to support a contract. Later, the defendant's counsel argued that a person has no property in his own features, Short of doing what is libelous or otherwise illegal, there is no restriction on the photographer's using his negative. But the court, while expressly finding a breach of contract and of trust sufficient to justify his interposition, still seems to have felt the necessity of resting the decision also upon a right of property in order to bring it within the line of those cases which were relied upon as precedents. This process of implying a term in a contract or of implying a trust, particularly where the contract is written and where there is no established usage or custom, is nothing more nor less than a judicial declaration that public morality, 
private justice and general convenience demand the recognition of such a rule, and that the publication under similar circumstances would be considered an intolerable abuse. So long as these circumstances happen to present a contract upon which such a term can be engrafted by the judicial mind, or to supply the relations upon which a trust or confidence can be erected, there may be no objection to working out the desired protection through the doctrines of contractor of trust. But the court can hardly stop there. The narrower doctrine may have satisfied the demands of society at a time when the abuse to be guarded against could rarely have arisen without violating a contract or a special confidence. But now that modern devices afford abundant opportunities for the perpetuation of such wrongs without any participation by the injured party, the protection granted by the law must be placed upon a broader foundation. While, for instance, the state of the photographic art was such that one's picture could seldom be taken without his consciously sitting for the purpose, the law of contractor of trust might afford the prudent man sufficient safeguards against the improper circulation of his portrait. But since the latest advances in photographic art have rendered it possible to take pictures surreptitiously, the doctrines of contract and of trust are inadequate to support the required protection, and the law of tort must be resorted to. The right of property in its widest sense, including all possession, including all rights and privileges, and hence embracing the right to an inviolate personality, affords alone that broad basis upon which the protection which the individual demands can be rested. Thus, the courts, in searching for some principle upon which the publication of private letters could be enjoined, naturally came upon the ideas of a breach of confidence and of an implied contract, but it required little consideration to discern that this doctrine could not afford all the protection required, since it would not support the court in granting a remedy against the stranger. And so the theory of property and the contents of letters was adopted. Indeed, it is difficult to conceive on what theory of the law the casual recipient of a letter who proceeds to publish it is guilty of a breach of contract, expressed or implied, or of any breach of trust in the ordinary acceptation of that term. Suppose a letter has been addressed to him without his solicitation. He opens it and reads. Surely he has not made any contract. He has not accepted any trust. He cannot, by opening and reading the letter, have come under any obligation save what the law declares, and however expressed, that obligation is simply to observe the legal right of the sender, whatever it may be, and whether it be called his right of property in the contents of the letter or his right of privacy. A similar groping for the principle upon which a wrongful publication can be enjoined is found in the law of trade secrets. There, Injunctions have generally been granted on the theory of a breach of contract or of an abuse of confidence. It would, of course, rarely happen that anyone would be in the possession of a secret unless confidence had been reposed in him. But can it be supposed that the court would hesitate to grant relief against one who had obtained his knowledge by an ordinary trespass, for instance, by wrongfully looking into a book in which the secret was recorded, or by eavesdropping? Indeed, in Jovet v. Winyard, 1820, where an injunction was granted against making any use of or communicating certain recipes for veterinary medicine, it appeared that the defendant, while in the plaintiff's employ, had surreptitiously got access to his book of recipes and copied them. Lord Eldon granted the injunction upon the ground of there having been a breach of trust and confidence, but it would seem to be sufficient to draw any sound legal distinction between such a case and one 
where a mere stranger wrongfully obtained access to the book. We must therefore conclude that the rights so protected, whatever their exact nature, are not rights arising from contract or from special trust, but are rights as against the world. And, as above stated, the principle which has been applied to protect those rights is in reality not the principle of private property, unless that word be used in an extended and unusual sense. The principle which protects personal writings and any other productions of the intellect or the emotions is the right to privacy. And the law has no new principle to formulate when it extends this protection to the personal appearance, sayings, acts, and to personal relation, domestic or otherwise. If the invasion of privacy constitutes a legal injuria, the elements for demanding redress exist, since already the value of mental suffering caused by an act wrongful in itself is recognized as a basis for compensation. The right of one who has remained a private individual to prevent his public portraiture presents the simplest case for such extension. The right to protect oneself from pen portraiture from a discussion by the press of one's private affairs would be a more important and far-reaching one. If casual and unimportant statements in a letter, if handiwork, however inartistic and valueless, if, pos <coughs> if possessions of all sorts are protected not only against reproduction, but against description and enumeration, how much more should the acts and sayings of a man in his social and domestic relations be guarded from ruthless publicity? If you may not reproduce a woman's face photographically without her consent, how much less should be tolerated the reproduction of her face, her form, and her actions by graphic descriptions colored to suit a gross and depraved imagination? The right to privacy, limited as such right must necessarily be, has already found expression in the law of France. It remains to consider what are the limitations of this right to privacy and what remedies may be granted for the enforcement of the right. To determine in advance of experience the exact line at which the dignity and convenience of the individual must yield to the demands of the public welfare or private justice would be a difficult task. But the more general rules are furnished by the legal analogies already developed in the law of slander and libel and in the law of literacy and artistic property. 1. The right to privacy does not prohibit any publication of matter which is of public or general interest. In determining the scope of this rule, Aid would be afforded by the analogy, in the law of libel or slander, of cases which deal with the qualified privilege of comment and criticism on matters of public and general interest. There are, of course, difficulties in applying such a rule, but they are inherent in the subject matter and are certainly no greater than those which exist in many other branches of the law. For instance, in that large class of cases in which the reasonableness or unreasonableness of an act is made the test of liability. The design of the law must be to protect those persons with whose affairs the community has no legitimate concern from being dragged into an undesirable and undesired publicity and to protect all persons whatsoever, their position or station, from having matters which they may properly prefer to keep private made public against their will. It is the unwarranted invasion of individual privacy which is reprehended and to be, so far as possible, prevented. The distinction, however, noted in the above statement is obvious and fundamental. There are persons who may reasonably claim as a right protection from the notoriety entailed by being made the victims of journalistic enterprise. 
There are others who, in varying degrees, have renounced the right to live their lives screened from public observation. Matters which men of the first class may justly contend concern themselves alone may in those of the second be the subject of legitimate interest to their fellow citizens. Peculiarities of manner and person, which in the ordinary individual should be free from comment, may acquire a public importance if found in a candidate for public office. Some further discrimination is necessary, therefore, than to class facts or deeds as public or private according to a standard to be applied to the fact or deed per se. To publish of a modest and retiring individual that he suffers from an impediment in his speech or that he cannot spell correctly is an unwarranted, if not an unexampled, infringement of his rights, while to state and comment on the same characteristics found in a would-be congressman could not be regarded as beyond the pale of propriety. The general object in view is to protect the privacy of private life, and to whatever degree and in whatever connection a man's life has ceased to be private before the publication under consideration has been made, to that extent the protection is to be withdrawn. Since then, the propriety of publishing the very same facts may depend wholly upon the person concerning whom they are published. No fixed formula can be used to prohibit obnoxious publications. Any rule of liability adopted must have in it an elasticity which shall take account of the varying circumstances of each case, a necessity which unfortunately renders such a doctrine not only more difficult of application, but also to a certain extent uncertain in its operation and easily rendered abortive. Besides, it is only the more flagrant breaches of decency and propriety that could in practice be reached, and it is not perhaps desirable even to attempt to repress everything which the nicest taste and keenest sense of the respect due to private life would condemn. In general, then, the matters of which the publication should be repressed may be described as those which concern the private life, habits, acts, and relations of an individual and have no legitimate connection with his fitness for a public office which he seeks or for which he is suggested or for any public or quasi-public position which he seeks or for which he is suggested and have no legitimate relation to or bearing upon any fact done by him in a public or quasi-public capacity. The foregoing is not designed as a wholly accurate or exhaustive definition, since that which must ultimately in a vast number of cases become a question of individual judgment and opinion is incapable of such definition, but it is an attempt to indicate broadly the class of matters referred to. Some things all men alike are entitled to keep from popular curiosity, whether in public life or not, while others are only private because the persons concerned have not assumed a position which makes their doings legitimate matters of public investigation. 2. The right to privacy does not prohibit the communication of any matter, though in its nature private, when the publication is made under circumstances which would render it a privileged communication according to the law of slander and libel. Under this rule, the right to privacy is not invaded by any publication made in a court of justice, in legislative bodies, or the committees of those bodies in municipal assemblies, or the commi committees of such assemblies, or practically by any communication made in any other public body, municipal or parochial, or in any body quasi-public, like the large voluntary associations formed for almost every purpose of benevolence, business, or other general interest, and, at least in many jurisdictions, reports of any such proceedings would in some measure be accorded a like privilege. Nor would the rule prohibit any publication made by one in the discharge of some public or private duty, whether legal or moral, 
or in conduct of one's own affairs in matters where his own interest is concerned. 3. The law would probably not grant any redress for the invasion of privacy by oral publication in the absence of special damage. The same reasons exist for distinguishing between oral and written publications of private matters as is afforded in the law of defamation by the restricted liability for slander as compared with the liability for libel. The injury resulting from such oral communications would ordinarily be so trifling that the law might well, in the interest of free speech, disregard it altogether. 4. The right to privacy seizes upon the publication of the facts by the individual or with his consent. This is but another application of the rule which has become familiar in the law of literary and artistic property. The cases there decided establish also what should be deemed a publication, the important principle in this connection being that a private communication of circulation for a restricted purpose is not a publication within the meaning of the law. 5. The truth of the matter published does not afford a defense. Obviously, this branch of the law should have no concern with the truth or fa of falsehood of the matters published. It is, not for injury to the, it is not for injury to the individual's character that redress or prevention is sought, but for injury to the right of privacy. For the former, the law of slander and libel provides perhaps a su sufficient safeguard. The latter implies the right not merely to prevent inaccurate portrayal of private life, but to prevent its being depicted at all. 6. The absence of malice in the publisher does not afford a defense. Personal ill will is not an ingredient of the offense any more than in an ordinary case of trespass to person or to property. Such malice is never necessary to be shown in an action for libel or slander at common law, except in rebuttal of some defense, e.g., that the occasion rendered the communication privilege, or under the statutes in this state and elsewhere that the statement complained of was true. The invasion of the privacy that is to be protected is equally complete and equally injurious whether the motives by which the speaker or writer was actuated are taken by themselves, culpable or not. Just as the damage to character and to some extent the tendency to provoke a breach of the peace is equally a result of defamation without regard to the motives leading to its publication. Viewed as a wrong to the individual, this rule is the same pervading the whole law of torts, by which one is held responsible for his intentional acts, even though they are committed with no sinister intent, and viewed as a wrong to society. It is the same principle adopted in a large category of statutory offenses. The remedies for an invasion of the right of privacy are also suggested by those administered in the law of defamation and in the law of literary and artistic property, namely, 1. An action of tort for damages in all cases. Even in the absence of special damages, substantial compensation could be allowed for injury to feelings as in the action of slander and libel. 2. An injunction in perhaps a very limited class of cases. It would doubtless be desirable that the privacy of the individual should receive the added protection of the criminal law, but for this, legislation would be required. Perhaps it would be deemed proper to bring the criminal liability for such publication within narrower limits, but, the, the, but that the community has an interest in preventing such invasions of privacy sufficiently strong to justify the introduction of such a remedy cannot be doubted. Still, the protection of society must come mainly through a recognition of the rights of the individual. Each man is responsible for his own acts and omissions only. If he condones what he reprobates with a weapon at hand equal to his defense, he is responsible for the results, 
If he resists, public opinion will rally to his support. Has he then such a weapon? It is believed that the common law provides him with one forged in the slow fire of the centuries and today fitly tempered to his hand. The common law has always recognized a man's house as his castle, impregnable often even to its own officers engaged in the execution of its commands. Shall the courts thus close the front entrance to constituted authority and open wide the back door to idle or prurient curiosity?